Hey everyone, before we get into today's episode, I just wanted to remind you that we have a ton of extra content over on our Patreon. We do movie watch parties, special Patreon bonus episodes, and all other sorts of wacky stuff that you can access easily if you head on over to patreon.com slash filmwhiskey. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. In 1953, director Billy Wilder and star William Holden gave the world a slapstick drama about one man's redemption in the heart of a World War II prisoner camp. In 2023, we bid a fond farewell to a flight of five bourbons. The film is Stalag 17. The whiskey is benchmark foolproof. And more of you than both. This is The Film and Whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we are looking at Billy Wilder's 1953 film, Stalag 17. Stalag. Stalag. Now, Brad, I will say right up front, I fully expect that if we were to list out the most seen to least seen films of season seven by the general population, this has got to be close to the bottom. It's not that it's yeah. necessarily an unpopular movie, but it is, let's be frank here, 70 years old, and it is not one of Billy Wilder's top four or five most remembered movies. Yeah. I'm going to describe to you how old this movie is. You can watch it for free on Pluto TV. You sure can. And on so, Tubi. And on Tubi. So if, if that tells you how popular the movie is. I don't understand. I like I actually did watch this partially on Tubi and the print that they're using is so crappy and so old. And like mm -hmm. it was it was both pixelated and a bad print of the movie to the yeah. point where I pulled off my shelf, the Stalag 17 DVD that I have. If you know Ooh. anything about DVDs, uh, DVDs they're awesome. are they're encoded at 480p. And I put it in my DVD player and I was like, wow, this is a major improvement in picture over, yeah. <laughs> over what was on Tubi. I, so I went back and forth. There's actually a free recording. I don't know if like, I think Paramount produced this picture. I don't know if they just haven't felt like copyright striking it, but the entire movie is just on YouTube. Oh, there you go. Just and it, and it's not like somebody like some company did it. It's just some dude uploaded it like eight years ago, and it's also in like 480p. <laughs> so there you go, folks. Uh, our our <laughs> highest recommendation for the ideal conditions: watch Stalag 17 as God intended on Tubi <laughs> or on some guy's YouTube stream. Yeah, where's where's Scorsese or the uh, Criterion Collection? Why, why aren't they? You know, the funny thing is this movie is available on Blu-ray and it has like stellar reviews. So I'm imagining oh. that it looks really good if you get it there. But, you know, or you could go the free route and you could watch the <laughs> yep. world's worst version of this on Tubi. 
All right. If you're new to the Film and Whiskey podcast, <laughs> this is exactly what you can this, this is what we talk about, folks. These are the jokes. <laughs> so I'm thinking about Stalag 17, and I think, to be fair and to be frank, this is the one that I needed a third movie by Billy Wilder to put in here. And <laughs> like most directors, you know, Billy Wilder has five, six, seven movies that are like most people would recognize them by name. And then you get into, OK, there's probably like the next tier down. And with people like Spielberg, you probably don't hit that quite as early. Hitchcock, you probably don't hit that quite as early. But with Billy Wilder, I was really torn because he has a few other movies. Uh, there's a movie that came out in 51 called Ace in the Hole, which was a huge flop, I believe, upon release, but has been reclaimed and is now like really popular with Criterion Bros. Uh, mm -hmm. He has a movie in the late 50s, Witness for the Prosecution, which gets nominated for Best Picture. Here's a movie in the mid 40s called The Lost Weekend. Is uh, Weekend at Bernie's the sequel it to is. The Lost Weekend? It is. You actually made okay. that joke like earlier in the season. I think you forgot that you made that joke already. No. It didn't work the first time and it didn't work now, Brad. <laughs> All that to say, I went with Stalag 17 because after Sunset Boulevard, I was like, you know what? We need a palate cleanser here. And this movie, for being very tense and very dramatic at parts, it's also a lot of fun. Yeah, 100%. I, I was saying to you before we got on that there's there's two characters in this film named Animal and Shapiro. And they they feel like they are straight out of a Three Stooges, like silent era slapstick comedy. Mm -hmm. And they're just hanging out in the middle of this prisoner war camp where they're trying to find, you know, this informant. And it, it, it just doesn't fit. And nope. yet it fits perfectly. And I, I loved it. So if we can go back through the annals of film and whiskey here, I think this is our third prisoner of war movie after The Great Escape and Bridge on the River Kwai. I don't think mm -hmm. we've done any more besides that. And this movie really wants to toe the line between the two in a lot of ways. I think it's it's got well, I think it's closest to The Great Escape. And it's kind of not fair to this movie to compare it to The Great Escape because The Great Escape happens 10 years after this movie. And I mm -hmm. think as we discuss this movie today, Brad, it's really important that we keep in mind that this is one of the first prisoner of war films to come out after World War II. And they kind of tip you off to that in the opening narration where the narrator basically says, hey, I'm, I'm sick of watching movies that didn't look like my experience of the war at all. We were in a prisoner of war camp and then it shows you what the prisoner of war camp looks like. And so even though I don't necessarily think it's as effective as The Great Escape or as uh, Bridge on the River Kwai, it is really important to note that this is one of the first times somebody dared to show something like this on screen. Yeah, and it's a good choice because I feel like, you know, now, like I looked up, you know, World War II prisoner of war movies. There's like over 80 of them, Bob. Yeah. It's like a massive amount. And I think that like prisoner of war movies it's just a it's a, a feasting ground for interesting character development under high pressure situations paired with lots of deception. And, and like everybody knows the stakes. Everybody. It, it honestly kind of reminds me of uh, when Patrick H. Willems talked about baseball movies and how everybody knows the geography and rules mm -hmm. of a baseball game. Like, it's almost the same thing. Like, as soon as you know it's a prisoner of war movie, 
you know the rules. You know that the prisoners are going to try to deceive the guards. They're going to try to escape in some way or or ruin the guards' lives in some way. And the, the drama that plays out from there has an established set of rules. And I think that's what makes prisoner of war movies so attractive. Yeah, I totally agree, man. And I think that it's time for us to get into talking about this movie in particular. Again, we'll put it in the context of, you know, all the other prisoner of war movies. But when it comes to Stalag 17, I know for a darn fact that this was your first time seeing it, Brad. Don't, don't try <laughs> this to is my first me. time. First time hearing of it. Yeah, so. there you go. I mean, it is. it doesn't really have a title that rolls off the tongue, even though I have to say, like, once you understand from the first two minutes of the movie what the word Stalag means, Stalag 17 is a pretty badass name for a movie. Like, it just yeah. sounds cool. 100 percent. Yeah, it, it's a it's a cool title. And it's I think it's an interesting addition into the world of Billy Wilder. It feels so much different than his traditional movies that we've watched from mm -hmm. him. Yep. That I, I'm I'm really glad that you picked it as the third movie here. Yeah, I am too. And I was really leaning towards Ace in the Hole for this movie, but it has that that same really uh mean spirited cynicism that Sunset Boulevard did. And I think Wilder kind of pressed the reset button on himself a little bit before he made Stalag 17. And we'll see this happen again next week when we make the turn from this movie into the film that he makes a year later, Sabrina. So I'm excited to get kind of the full picture of Wilder's versatility as a director and as a writer throughout these three movies. But that means that it is time for America's favorite segment, Brad Explains. Brad's going to give us the movie plots with only 60 seconds ticking on the clock. So let's go ahead and hear your take with this little segment that we call Brad Explains. Yes, Brad Explains, the part of the podcast where Brad breaks down the movie that he has just seen, often for the first time. As we know, this was Brad's first time seeing Stalag 17. Brad, you have one minute on the clock to explain the plot of this movie to our listeners in the most spoiler-filled fashion possible. And I have to say, mm. we don't always give spoiler warnings uh, beyond what I just said, but this movie hinges on finding out the identity of someone who is undercover. And so if you have even the smallest bit of interest in seeing this movie, I would recommend watching the movie, coming back after you finish it to hear our take on it, because we're going to spoil the twist right now. Yeah, and I was going to say, like... This movie is two hours on the dot. It's not too long. Nope. And it's honestly a lot of fun. So I, if you, like Bob said, if you have any inclination to go watch it, go watch it. It's free on Tubi. High high definition. <laughs> Tubi. So, so go, go check it out. <laughs> All right, man. You have a minute on the clock and go. Stalag 17 is a prisoner of war movie about some American air prisoners in a German prison of war camp. Uh, at the start of the movie, two Americans are killed while trying to escape from the camp. And it helps establish the fact that in this one barracks, there is an informant telling the Germans what's going on in the barracks. The first person suspected and the person suspected throughout most of the movie is William Holden's character. Sefton, who is kind of a black market uh, savant, and he's able to wheel and deal his way into being the king of the market, if you will. There are different slapstick things that happen with two kind of side characters, Animal and uh, Shapiro. Shapiro. Thank Ten you. Ten seconds. And it turns out, I'm not even going to spoil it, Bob. 
Just yeah. go watch the Dagon movie. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, can, it's not Sefton. There you go. Sefton <laughs> has to go. figure out who the informant in the barracks is. Yeah. Will he succeed? Question mark. <laughs> Who's to say? Who is to say? All right. So that's the setup for Stalag 17. Brad, we're going to be comparing this movie a lot to The Great Escape. I just know that it's going to happen. But it's probably the only other movie that I can really think of. And I say movie because when it comes to TV, I think something like Hogan's Heroes is pretty, pretty much like directly copied from Stalag 17. Oh. The uh, the German uh, prisoner. Yes. Like the, the, the German guard. What, yeah. Oh, it's I, like the same guy. I know nothing. It's the same guy. It's the same <laughs> character. But in terms of movies, I think this, this is obviously most closely related to The Great Escape, especially since in The Great Escape, you have these really taut, really dramatic escape uh, sequences. But you also have them balanced out with like sequences of guys getting really drunk and doing silly things and uh, toying with the Germans, but not getting shot for it because the Germans are just like, oh, you so and so's. <laughs> and you have that in this movie, too. And it's not necessarily believable, but it makes for a really fun movie. Yeah. And you don't, I don't, you don't, I don't get... know. How, I don't know how many fun POW movies there are. And those are really the only two I can think of. <laughs> I say you don't get Steve McQueen riding away on a motorcycle either. You sure don't. And that's, you know, that's that's a point in point in The Great Escape's favor. <laughs> also, anytime we talk about The Great Escape, I will never not mention it's just got the most catchy theme of any oh, yeah. movie of all time. Oh. <laughs> I feel like we are already kind of tipping our hand a little bit in that I don't think this movie is quite as good as The Great Escape, but I do think no. it lays the blueprint and the prototype. Yeah, and it, where... it 100% does. I, I think for me, the thing that, that captured me very quickly was with this movie was that the opening escape sequence. Oh gosh. Is incredible. Really? Like one of the best parts of the whole movie, honestly. Yes. Yeah. The tension is extraordinarily high. Like I said, we already know the stakes that are at hand. We know the geography of the movie. So when Wilder just plops you right into the middle of this escape sequence, you're on the edge of your seat from mm-hmm. the very start, and then you never come back down because you keep wondering, like, who is the informant? And I feel like a lot of modern movies are a little more predictable about who it might be. This one genuinely keeps you guessing. I, like, I did not guess who it was until it was revealed. Yeah. I think that opening sequence is like a perfect microcosm for the whole movie because the narrator of this movie is just a guy in the barracks. It's not William Holden. And honestly, his voice kind of reminds me of in 12 Angry Men, like the little puny squirrely yep. guy. He reminds yeah, me like yep. exactly of that guy. Uh, I, I think the the narrator is Cookie, right? His kind of assistant. I think so. I'm not entirely okay. sure. Like, and, and I think he says who he is right at the start, but I can't remember for the life of me right now. But all that to say, he does not have the most like, uh, you know, uh, seductive Swap. radio voice. Yeah. He just sounds. <laughs> and then we went to the prisoner of war camp. And so that's him like <laughs> so, the whole movie. So it's like your seven year old trying to tell a story. <laughs> yeah, pretty much, actually. <laughs> but I guess what I'm trying to say is I, I think it's a great microcosm for the movie because you get plopped into. This guy is setting up the world of the POW camp. And so it feels kind of like it's going to be a comedy and a little bit slapsticky. And, oh, you know, it's not it's not so easy for us, but we get by. And then all of a sudden you get plopped into the barracks and it's like we are mid escape plan right now. 
and it is mm-hmm. very tense and very taut. And those two guys make it out of the perimeter of the camp, but the Germans are there waiting for them. And I think the brutality of their murder and, mm-hmm. and how quick and how cold and how uh, clinical it is, is like, I wasn't expecting that for a movie that came out in 53. And, yeah. you know, the, you see these guys pop up out of their hole and they're like, okay, cool, we made it. And the camera pans over and you see the Germans there and you register like, oh man, they're going to get caught. And then boom, like they're getting machine gunned to death. And it I, is like- Also, the fact that the Germans- didn't just wait outside the hole with like, you know, a rifle or some no. machine guns. They set up an entire machine gun nest. And there's like a guy feeding the bullets in. Like it looks <laughs> yeah. it looks like the D-Day setup from Saving Private Ryan. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, For these two dudes popping out of a hole with right. no weapons. They're nothing. getting shot with like anti-aircraft ammunition. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So anyway, I, I guess what I'm saying here is I love the way the movie starts because it also achieves the balance that I think this movie achieves of finding the the comedy and the lighter moments, but then knowing when to like cut it out and just get really serious about things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that Wilder strikes a perfect balance throughout the film. And I, I kind of want to talk about some of the performances because the only place I think the balance is lacking is in the fact that certain characters are always serious mm-hmm. and certain characters are always funny. Yep. Yep. And I don't know if that's something you struggled with. It's something that like, I didn't mind a ton, but it definitely felt a little bit dissonant. Like, you know, like two keys playing off tone from each other. Yes. Sometimes. And it felt like in the world of the movie, even when things get very serious, those comedic performers are still stuck in whatever world they've created for themselves where they're still being mm-hmm. comedic. Yeah. Or like, you know, I just don't buy them as serious now because you've had them be comedic in 90% of every other scenario in this movie. So, yeah I, yeah, I totally agree, man. But if we're talking performances, we have to start at the top with William Holden. This is the movie that wins William Holden the best actor Oscar. He thinks when he wins it that... uh I don't want to say it was undeserved, but he thought that somebody from the movie from here to eternity should have won it instead of him. And he thought it was a makeup from him not winning in 1950 from Sunset Boulevard. And I I think the place to start when it comes to talking about Holden is to compare this character and the role directly to Sunset Boulevard. Last week, I said that one of the things I didn't like about the character of Joe Gillis is that he is a piece of shit, but also that he doesn't have the sort of self-deprecating, you know, I'm an ass, but I'm kind of charming about it that I think mm-hmm. a character, you know, somebody like a Clooney could have brought to that role. He has that here. And it's hilarious because even in the first 10 minutes of the movie, he's doing that kind of wry little grin and he's saying like these horrible things and everyone hates him. And he's just like, ah, I don't care. Like, I'm going to let it roll off my back. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, man, if only. Wilder had let Holden bring this energy into Sunset Boulevard, I think it would have improved that character. And it works perfectly here. Yeah, I think what makes it work here, Bob, is the fact that in our subconscious, we know that Holden's character in Sunset Boulevard has a choice about being at that mansion. Like they can play it up all they want that he's stuck there. But he could leave at any time. He could pick up and go back to Dayton, which he tries to do at the end of the film. And and he could leave whenever he wanted to. Whereas in a prisoner of war camp, 
you know that he doesn't have a choice. Mm-hmm. Like he is stuck there. And yeah, he could try to help escape and all that. But you, it, it's more understandable of him trying to make the best of a really crappy situation than it is in Sunset Boulevard. And I think that just makes him a little more sympathetic as a figure. The funny thing, ultimately, I guess the irony is, as much as I hate the character of Joe Gillis, I think that he is a complex enough figure that I could see William Holden winning an Oscar for that movie and it being justified. Whereas Mm -hmm. this character, Sefton, he's barely in the movie until the last 15 minutes. Like he's in and out a little bit, but it's not until you hit like, I don't know, the one hour mark that the narrator is like, oh, yeah, I should tell you a little bit more about this guy, Sefton. Mm -hmm. And you forget that he's supposed to be the star of the movie. And he really does take over in the last 20 minutes of the movie. And it has this great kind of monologue towards the end. But even as I found out that he wins the Oscar for this movie, I'm like, is this a leading man performance? Like, I guess it's the lead performance of the movie. But this feels so much more like an ensemble picture than one that has even a central figure in it. Yeah, I'm with you 100%. Knowing that he won the Oscar in this, it it almost felt like watching Last of the Mohicans for me, where I thought that Daniel Day-Lewis won the Oscar for that performance. And so I was like waiting for him to be awesome, and I never felt like he was. Mm-hmm. Whereas in this one, I was like, oh, I know that he won, a perf- won it for this performance. And so I, I kind of was just like, once again, waiting for him to be awesome and was like, oh, like, He's good. It's a solid B, B plus character and performance. I just don't know if it's anything that deserves an Oscar. Yeah. Like, honestly, if anything, uh, Richard Erdman of the television show Community Fame, Mm. uh, he, I thought he was incredible as as Hoffy, Sergeant Hoffman. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, I I really liked his performance. He had a a sincerity and earnestness about him that felt just really charming. Yeah, there's a couple people in this ensemble that I thought really stood out, too. There's a guy named Neville Brand. His character's name is Duke. He's the guy with the beard that is like Mm -hmm. always suspicious of William Holden. I thought he was excellent in that role because he doesn't really do much except for be suspicious the whole movie. But he plays it really, really well. There is one other person from this movie that gets nominated for an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor, and that is Robert Strauss, who plays Animal. Now, we've talked about him a little bit to this point, but Animal is, for the most part, the comic relief of the movie. And Brad, I want to pinpoint one moment in the movie that I wish Wilder had milked just a little more. And it's toward the end of the movie, and they're having this kind of, I don't know, dance party in their barracks. And half the guys are are dressed up as women or are playing the women in, you know, their dance pairs. And uh, Animal has been in love with Betty Grable the whole movie. And he sees one of his one of his fellow soldiers dressed up like a woman and is convinced in his kind of delirium that it is Betty Grable. And he starts dancing with her. And then it turns out to be by delirium. You mean drunken stupor, you know? Yeah. (laughs) It turns out to be Shapiro who reveals himself and says, hey, man, it's me, your buddy. And there's this really kind of sad and touching moment where you realize, like, he's heartbroken. It's and it's not played for laughs. He's like legitimately crushed. Mm -hmm. And you feel for him. And the problem that I have with that moment is that I think Wilder in some of his later films, like The Apartment, he can find the tragedy in the comedy a little bit better. And I think in this movie, 
it's still trying to be played for a laugh when it is actually kind of crushing. And I wish that he had just leaned into that, the tragedy of that moment just a little bit more. And I think that's kind of, yeah. again, for me, that's like emblematic of the whole movie where it, it works, but I think it could have worked just a little bit better. Yeah. And maybe a slightly more mature Wilder could pull that off. Mm. I, I, I do think that Shapiro and the animal are a really fun duo that that kind of keep the movie driving forward. Uh, as I was watching, uh, you, you said his name was Richard Strauss, Robert Strauss, Robert Strauss playing uh, playing the animal. He reminded me of a mixture of like Brad Garrett from Everybody Loves mm-hmm, Raymond mm-hmm. and John Belushi. Oh, nice. Yeah, he like, does he, have like the sort of uh, what's the the kind way of saying it? The slovenliness of uh, yes, <laughs> of, of Belushi. But he has the voice and the gait and the sort of like hunched over. I don't know. Awkwardness of Brad Garrett. Uh, yeah. Yes, 100%. And I so for me like the mixture of those two actors for me just 100% worked. Mm-hmm. I I thought he was incredibly funny and his his relationship with Harry, you know, his friend that he mistakes to be Betty Grable at one point is honestly like really sweet and touching. And and the the few moments where I I believe in that the most is when things are looking dark for the barracks and for the troops and they're still kind of doing their slapstick thing. I, I think there are moments where I'm like, you know, I don't know if I would do any different if I was in a prison of war camp. Yeah. It brings a level of humanity to the situation that I, I think is helpful. A few more people to mention before we go to break Peter Graves, who becomes a really, uh, I don't want to say super popular character actor, but if you've ever seen the movie airplane, he plays the pilot in airplane, a super funny role. He has perhaps the most interesting role in the movie playing Price. And uh, I think, Brad, it's probably time to spoil everything here at this point. Yeah, it is. Price is the informant. And mm-hmm. he is a German who apparently uh, lived in Cleveland for a while. Dude, I was so pumped. They talk You're about pumped. Cincinnati. He's a Nazi. What are you talking about? <laughs> I mean, we You're did like, yeah, find Yeah, the Nazi lived in my town. Hooray. I I do I do remember when I was in high school they found not just in like Cleveland but in Seven Hills my tiny little itsy bitsy suburb right off of Cleveland Was this the the John Demyanyuk guy? Yeah, they found this Nazi prisoner prison of war camp well yeah. concentration camp guard. Yeah. Just like 90 years old living in Seven Hills, Ohio. Dude, I'm telling you, they did a, a Netflix documentary about him a couple years ago. It was like a four part mm-hmm. series of how they finally figured it out about him and how they finally got things to stick in his trial. Yeah. Super interesting. Uh, that is yeah. a complete aside. Peter Graves, really good <laughs> in this movie. I was just excited that they talked about Cleveland, Ohio and Cincinnati. <laughs> and Cincinnati. Like, come on. Come on, baby. Let's let's go, Ohio. I just, even when it's not even like a badge of honor, you're you're excited about <laughs> hearing Ohio pop up in a movie. <laughs> How often do you hear Ohio pop up in a movie? Uh, just last week, Joe Gillis, Dayton, Ohio. That's that's true. Dayton, Ohio. I was, maybe maybe Billy has like some some connection. He's got to a Ohio. soft spot. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, The last person I want to talk about is Otto Preminger. Now, uh, if you know your film history, Otto Preminger is primarily known as a director. And I almost brought him up last week, Brad, but we were running a little bit long. 
Otto Preminger is a director who was known for really pushing the boundaries within the confines of studio movies. So he, uh, some of his most famous movies would be like Anatomy of a Murder with James Stewart. It's a fantastic movie. Uh, But his movies were always pretty long and they were always like really, I don't want to say salacious. They were well made and they weren't smutty, but they were always pushing the envelope in terms of like violence on screen or subject matter on screen. 1940s smutty. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, fifties <laughs> and sixties too. But you, you not were talking in twenty twenty three. No, I guess what I'm saying is it wasn't like he was pushing the boundaries by making like you know erotic thrillers or like mm-hmm. he was just trying to get subject matter on screen that wasn't discussed, really taboo topics on screen. And last, would you say were, that he's like the German Hitchcock then? Uh, maybe in some capacities. Uh, so I mean, he makes a movie adaptation of the the opera Porgy and Bess, which is an all black cast. That at a time that that wasn't being done, he made a movie in the mid fifties with Frank Sinatra called The Man with the Golden Arm, which is about heroin addiction. Like it's just stuff that Ooh. wasn't wasn't on screen at the time. And <laughs> Bro, last that's, we- a t- that's a title for a movie, man. Right? Holy cow! Last week you kept mentioning Billy Wilder as someone who kind of pushed the envelope or really wanted to push back against cultural norms. And I almost brought up Otto Preminger, not realizing that he was going to pop up in this movie as an actor. So once again, Wilder is working with collaborators that he really respects. You know, last week it's Eric von Stroheim playing uh, a character in his movie and Cecil B. DeMille. This week it's Otto Preminger. Yeah. And uh, Preminger was, as a director, he said that the only thing he would yell at his actors for was showing up late or forgetting a line. And apparently he told Billy Wilder, hey, if I forget any lines in this, I'll send you a, a bottle of ca- of caviar. And apparently Billy sh- had quite a few bottles of caviar by the end <laughs> of the filming. Oh, that's funny. I think caviar comes in tins instead of bottles, but that's... Yeah. Probably. You know, I just thought about drinkable caviar and I was like, oh gosh. That sounds horrible. Have have you ever had caviar, Bob? I never have. I never have. have, Nor have I. Uh, It's not something I'm interested in. I would be interested in it if it was like really high quality. Like I've seen it like fresh caviar. I'm like, I would eat that. But when it's like, hey, this has been in my pantry for six years. Let's try this. (laughs) Here's a tin of caviar. No, thank you. (laughs) It's right next to the (laughs) sun-kissed. Well, speaking of super fancy things that we keep in our pantries, Brad... It's time for us to get into drinking the whiskey of the day. It is the last in the lineup of five benchmarks that we have done, and it's called Benchmark Foolproof. What do you say we try it? Let's get to it, Bob, to our our very fancy whiskey. (laughs) (laughs) All right, everybody. Today we are drinking the final in our Benchmark series, Benchmark Foolproof. You haven't even seen my final form yet, Brad. Yeah. <laughs> Bob, I didn't think you knew anime. There you go. <laughs> I'm, I'm full of surprises. Good job. I'm proud of you. Just like this whiskey is full of proof. Am I right? It's all the proofs. So yeah, if you've been paying attention to our podcast, we have tried five consecutive benchmark branded products to start this Mm. season. Buffalo Trace wanted to expand its most valuable, not valuable, what's the word for like (laughs) value-ish line? Swill. Yeah, there it is. There it is. (laughs) 
It's cheapest line of whiskey benchmark, and it did so by adding a whole bunch of fancy words after the word benchmark. We started uh, with the 86 proof top floor, and then we switched to the 90 proof small batch. There was a 95 proof, I think, single barrel. And then mm-hmm. Benchmark bonded last week at 100 proof. And after that, they said, screw it. Like, we're not going to keep going up so incrementally. We're going to take <laughs> this all the way up to 125 proof. Turned it up to 11, if you will. Brad, I don't know the exact price point on this. That's usually uh, something that you bring to the table research wise. Mm. But I don't all the research you're getting out of me, baby. (laughs) I don't know if there is a whiskey on the market that is so high in proof for what I assume to be so little in price. I was going to say, it costs over $100 less than its proof point. There there you go. I was going to say, like, uh, Old Granddad 114 is a, you know, 11 proof points lower than this. And also, I think retails for at least $30 now. So. I mean, you know, unless you're buying Everclear, I don't know if you can get anything this high proof for like 25 bucks. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say this is a I'll spoil the value right now. It's a really solid value, Bob. Mm. Uh, This is the second most expensive of the benchmark lineup at twenty three dollars in the state of Ohio. Okay, but uh, I like how this is still cheaper than the single barrel. Yes, that's crazy to me. Mm hmm. I mean, you know, Bob, it, it takes a lot of time and effort to pick out one crappy barrel of whiskey. <laughs> one barrel and then water it down to 95 about, proof. Yeah. yeah, about $25 <laughs> worth <laughs> of effort. Okay, so on the benchmark foolproof front, we are looking at, like I said, a 125 proof bourbon whiskey that has been aged for at least four years. It does not have an age statement on the bottle, which means it's a blend of a whole bunch of different ages of whiskey. But that also means that the minimum, the youngest whiskey in this blend is at least four years old. Buffalo Trace does not disclose the mash bill, but uh, some some pretty smart people online have pretty much figured out what the mash bill of this is. If you'd like to go look it up for yourself. I'm excited to dive into this, man. I think overall, this has been a pretty great experience going through these cheap whiskeys. Yeah, I will say, I think if I had to guess... I think that Buffalo Trace knew of my hatred for its high-end lineups, mm-hmm. and they were like, well, we got to appease Brad somehow. Yeah. So we're going to put out this fi- lineup of five cheap whiskeys, and I'll be honest with you, Bob, four out of five are s- really solid, great values. Well, that I think that indicates that you've already tried this before. I'm sipping it live as we discuss it. So why don't you go ahead and give your nosing notes, Brad, so I can write mine down as well. Yeah, so I'm getting like everything classic that you want out of a bourbon. Mm -hmm. There is caramel, there's brown sugar, there's vanilla. For me, it gets into a little bit of spiciness, some cinnamon, maybe a little bit of like nutmeg, Mm -hmm. almost kind of takes a Christmassy turn at the end. Yep. But there is nothing to complain about here. It's not an overly complex nose. But it's the the proof points give it a little bit of depth that the other ones were missing out on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I give it a seven and a half. I really love how crisp this one is. Like it just reminds mm-hmm. me of like apple peels, but also kind of like, you know, we just had a nice little rainstorm blow through here as I'm recording this. And I went outside and I smelled that like after the rain smell. It has yeah. that really great, like almost rainwater kind of smell to it. It's really, really beautiful. I think is, this might is be it my... just go ahead. Is it just me or do, like. Do you no longer enjoy things just to enjoy them 
but you immediately are like, mm, this is going in the old whiskey palette logbook. <laughs> Every time I smell a smell, you know? Yes. Yep. T- toddler diaper. I'm like, all right, I'm going to log that one in the back of my head. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, I think this might be my favorite nose out of all five of them. And it's not surprising because this hasn't been diluted at all. And so we're really getting, you know, exactly or close to what's coming out of the barrel here. I like it a lot. I'm going to give it an eight and a half on the nose. Yeah, Bob, I, and I'm with you. This is probably the best smelling of the five. And when you get into the palate, you can tell that there is some flavor going on here. Once again, this is not a complex whiskey. Like it's all of the nice, beautiful things you love about bourbon. It's brown sugar, caramel. Uh, like I said, some spiciness there. I don't know if I've ever had a palate that so perfectly mimics the nose, but all the notes I gave before are still here, but they're enhanced a little bit because I'm actually drinking the whiskey. Uh, I give it an eight and a half out of 10 on the taste. Yeah, this I think this really will appeal to fans of Buffalo Trace because it has that so bitter, it's almost sour, oaky note to it. But I think here... It's almost like it doesn't come across as a flaw and it doesn't come across as something that's from a a lesser brand. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think before we've been like, oh, okay, maybe they're just putting that in the benchmark line because it's it's lower quality here. I think Mm -hmm. it's just like, hey, this is what oak tastes like, you know? Yeah. But uh, what I really love about it is on the palate. For me, it was like two very quick, rapid fire waves of heat. They went from the front of my palate to the back and then it just like repeated that process again. Really, really spicy, Uh, like the ethanol notes really come out and are prickly on the palate. Like you said, man, not super complex. It's for me, it's brown sugar and it's vanilla and it's Mm -hmm. really, really tasty. It's kind of thin on the mouthfeel, I think, because it is so high proof. So it kind of manifests as a little bit thin, but not astringent. And I really, really like that. I'm going to give it. See, here's the hard thing. I'm scoring it knowing that it's twenty three dollars. Like, is this yeah. an actual eight, eight and a half out of ten well, dude, palette? Give it, give it an actual score. I think I'll give what, it a seven and a half palette. If I'm talking okay. like every whiskey ever considered, this is like a three out of four star. I'll give it a seven and a half. Yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, for me, the finishes were all ding it a little bit because it does take on that traditional Buffalo Trace oaky tanginess Mm -hmm. and it just sours a little bit for me i'll give it a six and a half out of ten on the finish it's not bad but you can tell that it is a cheaper whiskey on the finish yeah i think i'm just gonna parrot you here man six and a half for all the reasons you just said yeah Uh, and that takes us to balance this is where we consider nose taste and finish kind of as one cohesive whole was there a part of this drinking experience That stood out from the others for good or for bad, or did it kind of make sense all throughout? I think for the most part, Brad, this is exactly what I expected a 125 proof benchmark product to taste like. It's just significantly better than most benchmark products, but it still carries all those same flavors throughout. So I think, I guess I'll give it a seven and a half. Like it's above average. It's not a perfect, obviously, whiskey, but it's pretty darn consistent and it's what I expected it to be. Yeah, I'm in literally the exact same spot, Bob. You parroted me earlier. I will parrot you here. Seven and a half on the balance. And I'm just going to say this. Let's keep this short and sweet today, man. This is a 10 out of 10 value. I don't really know that there's like any debating this, even though it's not our favorite whiskey, even though I probably shockingly might still 
go for the top floor before I would go for this one. If we're talking wow. like ranking one through five in these. Yeah. There is no better value out there for a high proof whiskey. And it's a palatable yeah. high proof whiskey. It's not just like, hey, my rum and coke needs extra alcohol in it. It tastes right. good. Yeah. No, uh, 100%. This is a 10 out of 10 on value. Out of all the things I could say nice about Buffalo Trace, they are knocking it out of the park on these cheap benchmark whiskeys that genuinely, I think almost every single one of them could retail for $10 higher. Mm -hmm. And I would still be like, oh, yeah, you know, seven out of 10 value. Like that's like it could be a little cheaper, but it's a good price. Totally agree, man. Real quick, before we give final scores on this one, let's kind of power rank the five that we did. Mm, Uh, For me, I think. You know, I don't even know if I need to go one and two, but like the upper tier for me is top floor and this and then the small batch. And then in the bottom tier would be the single barrel and uh, the bonded. Yeah, I think for me, I would go small batch and foolproof kind of tied at the top. I really liked those. Uh, and then right behind that, the bonded and the top floor in kind of their second category. Mm-hmm. And then the single barrel kind of fallen pretty far behind. Yeah, for sure. I think, like you said, four out of the five, everything except the single barrel was a no brainer recommendation from us in terms yeah. of like, you know, I think last week I even said with the bonded, like I wouldn't recommend trying this at the bar. But they're all worth a pickup, except for that single yeah. barrel. So, well, yeah, and especially like if you have a buddy who enjoys drinking whiskey, like go put ten to twelve dollars each in and and buy a bottle of it, and then you each have you know three fifty, three seventy five to drink. Like, exactly. That, like it's it's the easiest purchase you'll make. Okay, man, I'm coming out to a forty out of fifty on this whiskey. What are you coming out Ooh, to, Bob? I'm at a forty out of fifty. Hey, so we have our first. 40 of the season, which is usually pretty rarefied air. This one obviously was helped out by its value score. But even if you don't consider that it's such an incredible value and just take that part of the equation out, we came out to essentially a 30 out of 40 on the tasting notes, which Mm -hmm. is like a well above average experience. This is not just a budget bourbon. It's a budget bourbon that tastes pretty good. Yeah, 100 percent, Bob. And it, I think we paired it with just about the right movie. I like, think this so is too. Kind man. of a budget yet really solid movie. So let's get back into it. Let's do it. All right, everybody. That was Benchmark Foolproof, a 125 proof whiskey that only costs twenty three dollars, mm. and that alone should get you to go try it. I mean, you might as well. But. Leaving that to the side, we are going to jump back into the episode and go to Canada's absolute favorite segment, Two Facts and a Falsehood. Brad is going to try to stump you, Bob, to our right, and what is wrong? Two Facts and a Falsehood. Two Facts and a Falsehood is the part of the podcast where Brad presents three items to me as fact about the making of this movie. One of which he has completely made up, and it's my job to establish which one is the falsehood. Brad, I am a whopping two and two on the season so far, Mm. sitting pretty at 500. If this was baseball, I'd be in good position. Yeah, you'd probably be like second in your division, (laughs) doing pretty solid. So we'll see if I can keep the streak alive here. I won last week to bring myself back up to 500. 
I'm going to be real with you, man. I did a lot of research on Sunset Boulevard to prepare for that episode because it's such a major movie. Uh, I did, did zero. I did research. next to nothing about this movie. <laughs> the funny thing, you know, before you give me your two facts and a falsehood, let me just say for being a movie that I feel like a lot of dads will have seen at some point, there's not a lot online about this movie. And I, I have this stack of Billy Wilder books behind me. Like they, they talk about Stalag 17, but it just doesn't seem like anyone is super interested in learning that much about the production of this movie. <laughs> even the Wikipedia page doesn't even go in depth to the extent that I thought that it would. So, yeah, man, I'm coming into this one pretty cold. You are in uh, prime position here to get a victory this week. Hit me with your two facts and a falsehood. All right. Fact number one, the dog tags that you can see around the necks of some of the prisoners are authentic. They are not actually a pair of U.S. Uh, dog tags, but instead are a single dog tag with two slots that lets them be broken in half in the event the soldier is killed. And this is actually a German set of dog tags. Hmm. Fact number two, William Holden's line, this ain't the Salvation Army, this is everybody for himself, dog eat dog, was originally written as, this ain't the YMCA, we're not all bunk buddies here. <laughs> I, just, I didn't expect that. I hope you didn't make that one up, because you're going to legit get us canceled with that one. <laughs> All right. All right. Fact number three, Warren Sortome, an extra in the film, was an actual prisoner of war in Germany. He relates that there were around nine other POWs that served as extras in the film. He himself was flying in a B-24 that was shot down over northeastern Germany during the war. Hmm. All right, Brad, I'm going to assume that you didn't make up number two, because if you did, we have some problematic things to discuss uh, <laughs> after that one. Number one is really interesting, and I think just because I hope it's true, I'm going to say number three is the falsehood. Uh, <laughs> number two is the falsehood. Oh, Brad, dude, you can't do that, man. <laughs> okay, I 100% did not think of it as a gay joke. Oh, dude, that is... <laughs> I mean, one of the most iconic gay songs of all time is about going to the YMCA. Wait, that's a song about gay people? Have you ever heard of the village people? Yeah. They're all gay. I didn't know that. You didn't know that the village? Have you ever seen a picture of the village people? <laughs> yes, I've the seen the It's the gayest video. act in history, dude. <laughs> uh... Well, Film and Whiskey Nation, let it be known, Brad made up number two without knowing uh, his LGBT history and yeah. intended intended no offense with that one. One hundred percent. Oh my gosh, dude! <laughs> oh, oh man, <laughs> how do we steer on. out of that one, man? <laughs> I think that's it, dude. What's your <laughs> final score? final scores? And I'm going to go hide in a bunker. All right. Um, Okay, let's talk about Stalag 17. Brad, what do you want to talk about? Let's talk about some of the slapstick comedy. What what was your funniest gag from uh, from Animal and Shapiro? Hmm. I mean, I think it's got to be the painting a line on the ground gag to get over to the women's showers to try yes. to see in there. That was hilarious. Like, not just slapstick. That felt like a a cartoon, like an actual, 
like Wiley Coyote Roadrunner <laughs> cartoon. <laughs> like everything about it was this could be a Three Stooges skit. Yes. It's perfect. And it, it was. Yeah, it was hilarious. Also, why are there Russian women just hanging out at a prisoner of war camp in their own little compound? I mean, they're also prisoners. It's not like they're just shacking up there. Yeah, but it just seemed weird to me. I was like, I, maybe I just don't know my World War II history enough. But when they conquered, you know, other territories, I, I thought that they just kind of let the women and children keep living in the area. They didn't put them into prisoner camps. Hmm. I don't I, know. I, I don't know. I could Well, be and I also off. think that maybe I'm being a little bit swayed by uh, The Great Escape and The Bridge on the River Kwai, but I was thinking in the opening narration, they say that everybody in that, POW camp is at least a sergeant, right? So like mm-hmm. uh they may not all be officers, but it's essentially an officer's camp. And yeah. So I don't know why that they would they would even have a women's section of that camp. But yeah. you know, who knows? Maybe the who Nazis knows? were just trying to be efficient and save space. Yeah. <laughs> That's <laughs> if there's anything the Nazis are known for, efficiency. efficiency. <laughs> You know, it's just Bob. Did you know that this is the episode that's just gonna end tank? the podcast? Yeah, <laughs> just, just gonna destroy <laughs> film and whiskey. <laughs> Bob, I, I will say I really enjoyed this movie. I, I think we we kind of have talked about the slapstick side of it. How did the tension work for you? Like, wh- what did you think about his the the way he used shots to establish tension? Mm-hmm. And drama and the the gimmick of the light being pulled to to show, you know, when things are going on. How did that half of the movie work for you? It worked great for me. I think the thing that didn't work about it is that it's not half the movie. And the slapstick stuff not only goes on too long as a percentage of the movie, but I think each and every slapstick gag goes on for about like a minute too long just in general. Mm. I really wish that he had trimmed those up. And I, yeah. you know, I, when I look at the runtime of this movie, like you said, it's not super long, but I did find myself getting pretty bored in stretches, I think because it wasn't like slapstick tension, slapstick tension. It was like yeah. slapstick, filler, filler, slapstick, filler, tension, filler, yeah. slapstick, slapstick. And then he didn't get to the tension parts until way late in the movie. And mm. between the combo of like, it just has too much fat on it and also they try to milk the comedy past the point where it's funny in some places. It really left me wanting more. And I think the final reveal of who the mole is, is done really well, but I almost wish that it had been like a 25 minute, almost like a, like a courtroom type set piece where it's just monologue after monologue of, you know, accusing and finding evidence. And it's not, it's like a three minute, like, Hey, he did this thing. Here's this light. And everyone's like, oh, he's the Nazi. And that's the end yeah. of the movie. And I was like, man, I, you, you really built it up well. And it feels like an anticlimax now. Yeah, uh, that was my biggest complaint of the movie is that they they build up not not just the climax, but they build it up as like Sefton has this impenetrable wall that he has to you know blow his way through to convince everyone that he's not the mole. Mm. And then he just does it in two minutes. Like, and that for me was the biggest miss of the movie because of, like you said, they set it up so incredibly well that you don't know who the spy is. 
And it genuinely could be anyone but Sefton. You know, he has that great line where he says, the only people who know it's not me are me and the guy who did it. Right. And that line, like, is the epitome of the problem facing him. And it just feels like too easy of an out to just be like, yep, here's the explanation. All right, now let's figure it all out and we'll be done with it. One thing that I wish I had paid more attention to is... Does the audience definitively know that it's not him? Like, because I feel like right up until the point where Wilder reveals to the audience who it is, and then you find out that Sefton is also kind of, he has a good idea because he's like in the room when it's happening. I don't know that we ever actually see any evidence that would exonerate him. It's not like, oh, we saw him outside the barracks. and Then when we come back in, we can tell that something had happened in there. I think... Ooh. Do you know what I mean? You know what would have made this a noir movie? Mm. If he was the spy. Well, that's that, what I'm that saying. Have, I, I, like, yeah, that would have taken it right back into classic Billy Wilder territory. Right. And I feel like for such a long time, Wilder is toying with the audience of like, is he the mole? Is he not the mole? And then he reveals who the mole is. And it becomes a completely different thing where you're on Sefton's side now and you're you're wanting him to find the evidence to exonerate himself. And I wish that it had just built into a, to be frank, like an Aaron Sorkin-y, few good men type ending. Mm. And uh, it doesn't do that. And for there... all of the fantastic dialogue and one-liners in this movie, I really wanted s- some sort of verbal fireworks at the end of this film that I just didn't get. Yeah. Man. Disappointing movie. <laughs> Two out of ten. <laughs> Worthless. Well, before we jump into final scores, Brad, it is time for our final segment of the day that we call Let's Make It a Double. We're near the end of the episode, so thanks for listening to the Film and Whiskey Show. Let's pair another film with this one, even if it's struggling. It's the final segment of the day, now let's make it a double. Let's Make It a Double is the part of the show where we pair this movie up with another film to make the perfect double feature. Brad, I think we've pretty much already said explicitly many times what the perfect pairing for this movie is i i have a better one. Oh, okay well then let me Dude. say it this way i'm picking the great escape because that's the correct answer i think bridge on okay. the river Kwai could be you know a- almost as good because it is a william holden starring prisoner of war movie like you just yeah. go back to back on those uh but then you'd be watching movies for like five and a half hours so <laughs> you would same thing with great escape that's a three-hour movie too so brad what's your pick Remember that my pick is A, another prisoner of war movie, and B, is made with the goal of getting this podcast canceled. Mm -hmm. I am going to pick Tropic Thunder. Oh. Now, is it because they... Let me take a guess as to why you're picking it. Is it because it so perfectly balances the themes of war and actual danger with slapstick comedy? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I'll be honest with you. I actually think that they would be a pretty funny pairing mm-hmm. together yeah. to go from such an old film that has slapstick elements to a very modern film that has those slapstick elements. I, I'm like, actually, as I'm talking, convincing myself that this is actually a great idea. <laughs> uh, but all I'm going to say is Tropic Thunder is a hilarious movie and should be watched in addition to Stalag 17, which is a great movie as well. Totally agree. 
I think you just wanted to get another Tom Cruise reference in here. I Dude. I gave us a few good men, and you were like, not good enough, my friend. <laughs> we need more we need Cruise references. Fat, fat dancing Cruise is what we needed. Is is there any other? <laughs> All right, dude, I think I mean, it's time to give final scores on this movie. I am coming out weirdly to the same score that I came out to with Sunset Boulevard. And it's a massive caveat. I'm giving this movie an eight out of 10 because I think it works about as well as a movie with this premise can work. Mm-hmm. Like on paper, if you tried to pitch me this movie, I'd be like, that's really risky. And I think the ceiling for that movie is eight out of 10. And I really think this movie pretty much achieves its ceiling. Sunset Boulevard is a movie that I think has much higher ambitions and works fairly well, but has never worked perfectly for me. And so I guess my caveat is I think Sunset Boulevard's probably, if we're talking like capital C cinema, Sunset Boulevard is the better made movie, but they work to a pretty much equivalent extent to me. Yeah, I, I'm I'm kind of with you. I mean, except for the part where I liked Sunset Boulevard because I didn't. Uh I, I'm going to give this an 8 out of 10. Hmm. I think it's an incredibly funny movie. The drama and the pacing work pretty well for me. You know, I, I know you said you had issues with the level of slapstick and filler stuff. I That didn't bother me quite as much. I definitely think this could be like a hour and 40 to hour 50 minute movie instead of two hours. Mm-hmm. But overall, I, I think the performances are really great. I don't think Holden deserves an Oscar for it, but I do think it's a really good performance. So, yeah, I think this is in a pretty easy 8 out of 10 for me. All right. Well, we want to know what you think. Whoever's out there that's seen Stalag 17, if you've seen this movie before, reach out to us and I will give you a sticker because <laughs> I don't expect that that many of you have. And yet it's a really good movie. So if you've seen it, let us know at one of our social media accounts, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or TikTok at Film Whiskey. Or jump onto our Discord. You can find a link to the Discord at the end of every one of our show notes. And we are on there every single day talking to you guys, the fans of the Film and Whiskey podcast. Next week, we will be back with Wilder's follow up to Stalag 17, 1954's romantic comedy, Sabrina. Which I'm like super pumped for. Yeah, I'm really excited, man. Anytime we do Audrey Hepburn, I get very excited. Oh, man, she's incredible. All right, we'll see you for that one next week. But until then, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time. 